Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This podcast is about your future. What if the next years of your life can be the best years of your life? When full-time work becomes optional, you'll have the time to do all the things you've always wanted to do. If only you had the time. And soon you will. But to make the most of it, you'll need to be well-prepared. And that goes well beyond your financial planning. Each week, your host, Joe Casey, is inviting you into conversations with his guests to bring you insights inspiration and practical ideas to design your new life a life you'll build around what matters most to you and on your own terms let's get started today's podcast conversation is about thinking and more specifically thinking about how we think and hold on a minute i know what you're thinking or at least i think i do you'll learn later in the conversation that i'm actually not a mind reader but you might be wondering why are we talking about this I think pretty well. Thank you very much. Or what exactly does this have to do with retirement? Well, consider this. Thinking requires a lot of energy, about 20% of the energy in our body. And for that reason, we tend to lean toward more automatic thinking as opposed to more deliberate thinking. And that can lead us into some thinking traps that can create some issues in our day-to-day life and some suboptimal outcomes. And as for retirement, one thing people fail to remember sometimes is that as you leave the workplace and as we get older, we spend much more time alone. But you're not really alone. You tend to be more alone with your thoughts. So why not think better, learn to avoid some of the thinking traps that can get in our own way? Joining us today is Wu Kyung An. She's the author of Thinking 101, How to Reason Better, to Live Better. She is the John Hay Whitney Professor of Psychology at Yale University. After receiving her PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, at age 25, I should add, she was assistant professor at Yale University and associate professor at Vanderbilt University. In 2022, she received Yale's Lee Hickson Prize for teaching excellence in the social sciences. Her research on thinking biases has been funded by the National Institutes of Health and she is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and the Association for Psychological Science. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here today. (laughs) So many people listening to this are familiar with cognitive biases from behavioral economics, but your book is a wealth of information on common thinking traps from a day-to-day life perspective. And let's begin with confirmation bias. How does it work and how can it get in our way? So there are at least two ways in which confirmation bias can work. The first one is that we draw a conclusion based only on confirming evidence. And that might sound like what is wrong with that, right? But let's use an example that illustrates that even I still commit confirmation bias. So whenever I have a sore throat, I take echinacea and I get better in a couple of days. 
And that's been happening for years. And I know the scientific basis of the effects of the echinacea is still like questionable, but I don't want to take a risk, right? And to really make sure that it was echinacea that's curing my sore throat, what I should have done is that I should not take echinacea when I have a sore throat and see what happens. But I've never risked that. It's been working fine. I do get better, but I could be just getting better. But the echinacea is not a big deal because it's like at most $10 a year. But in Western society, there was a bloodletting that's been persisting for 2000 years for exactly the same reason. Whenever someone gets sick, they let the bad blood out and people do get better after several days. And they thought it was a bloodletting that did all the work. So presumably when George Washington had a throat infection, they did the bloodletting like three or four times and he ended up losing 40% of his blood and died of, died of bloodletting probably, not because of the throat infection. But then sometimes that can happen, but most of the time people have an immune system so they recover on their own. So as a result, people just believe that bloodletting works, it cures people. And they really meant well. I mean, it's not like there was any kind of ulterior motives to perpetuate the bloodletting. Nobody's really making money out of the bloodletting, and not a huge money. But it just seems too risky to to not perform the bloodletting when someone gets sick, when you already believe that bloodletting works. So that's one type of confirmation bias. And the second type of confirmation bias is that we can misinterpret evidence. We might think that we see the world the way it is, but we always use our background knowledge to interpret the world, to make sense out of the world. So here's one study that really nicely illustrated how that can hurt the society. The participants in the experiments were scientists at prestigious universities. And they're presented with a resume of a student who is applying for a lab manager option position. And they have pretty decent records, GPA and so on. And half the participants were scientists, received the resume with the name Jennifer. The other half received exactly the same resume, except that the name was John. And it turned out that the scientists thought that John was better, more competent, more hireable, more worthy of mentoring than Jennifer is. And on top of that, they offered John $3,500 more on annual salary than Jennifer. And it happened not only with the male scientists, but also with the female scientists. And it's because they have this belief that men are better at science than women are. And just because of that, they just ended up interpreting the exactly the same resume in different ways. And you mentioned in your book, your daughter pointing out at an award ceremony for her husband, where are all the girls? Oh. <laughs> yes. So my husband was getting an award from National Academy of Science. So he was sitting in the stage and my daughter, who was seven years old, I think, just said very loudly in front of everybody, in front of all these famous scientists saying, how come there are more boys than girls up there? <laughs> so another one you mentioned and write about is negativity bias. 
why does loss aversion carry more weight and how can we manage negativity bias? Yeah. Some researchers say that we have actually evolved to be more sensitive to loss, negative information. And it's because throughout most of of our human history, the resources have been really scarce. So in that case, any loss, even if it's a small one, can be a direct threat to our survivor. So we have evolved to protect what we possess, what our family have. We have to be very, very sensitive to that. So this loss aversion, I mean, it shouldn't be such a big deal in the current society because most of us, we can lose. I mean, if there's a jug of expired milk, it's expired yesterday, for instance, you should be able to let it go. I mean, it's not any direct threat to you, but we may feel like, oh, I can't really, maybe let, I might be able to use it for pancake or something else. <laughs> it might not be a bad, big, it's, so we can't really let it go. And that is called also what is known as an endowment effect. So in an experiment, one group of participants were provided with a mug and they were asked, do you want to switch this with the Swiss chocolate? And most of those participants said, no, I'm not going to switch. And the other group of participants were given, started out with a chocolate bar. This is yours to have, to keep. And they were asked, do you want to exchange this with mug? And they also did not want to exchange it with a mug either. However, when the participants, a third group of participants were provided with an option to choose between Swiss bar and a mug, then they were split in half and half. So to overcome this kind of loss aversion, you should do be more like the last group, the third group. Pretend that you don't own anything and whether you would take it. So going back to the expired milk, if someone is willing to give you an a jug of milk that was expired yesterday for free, would you take it? No, you would not take it. In that case, you might as well just let it go from your own refrigerator as well. So let, being able to let things go, letting go can be hard, but that's a good good practical takeaway. So yeah. out of all of the biases you wrote about, my personal favorite is overconfidence. And in particular, one thing that got my attention was your in-class experiment with the segment of the BTS music video, South Korean, I'll call them boy bands, I don't know if that's accurate or not. Yeah. Uh, and could you explain what that demonstrated? So I played just a six seconds clip of the BTS dancing like several times. And I also played the slow down version. So there's like a YouTube that teaches you how to do the BTS dance. I play the slow down version, uh, like, so in total, they must have watched like 10 or 15 times. And then I take the volunteer from the students, then they have to come out and then do it. And about 10 students volunteer and I start music and they're hopeless. They just cannot do it. Well, some might argue that BTS dance is hard. So, but the actual experiment was done with uh, Michael Jackson's Moonwalk. And that really does feel easy because it's like he's effortlessly just dancing. I mean, walking backwards, that's all that is. <laughs> but the participants were asked to watch it for like 20 times. And after that, when they actually perform it, they are hopeless also. What that illustrates is this. We oftentimes have to judge whether we can do something. And for example, we might not have gone on bicycling for several years and 
we're deciding whether to sign up for a bicycle trip for a vacation or something. And then you need to decide whether you can still bicycle and maybe you can run that in your head. Okay. I know how to stop. I know what to do. I know how to turn. I know how to speed up. I know how to change, switch the gears and so on. So if that feels easy and fluent, then that means that you can do it. Now, the problem is in many cases, when you see someone who does things effortlessly, then it just feels like you can also do it easily in your head. So you become overconfident. And one thing that I've noticed was many of the podcast interviewers, they make the same error. They think that since I wrote a book, everything that I said in the book must be in my head, stored <laughs> right there. <Yes. laughs> and I should be able to just spit it out just the way the book is written, right? And the book was written after like many, many hundreds of revisions, literally. So I have to also go back and what was that about? What was the study that supported that claim? So I am really, really glad that you gave me some directions as to where this interview will be going. And you totally avoided dodge that overconfidence. <laughs> I have made that mistake in the past many times. And I'll include a, in the show notes a link to the BTS music video. I'm still working on mine, my moves, as well as the moonwalk. But it is worth looking at that isolated clip and seeing. It's a great country song, as I mentioned. I've moved it into my running playlist. So it's good for that, that as well. So at the risk of committing thinking errors during this podcast conversation, does the research show any gender differences in thinking errors over confidence, for example? I'm asking that because I'm probably going to hear this when my wife listens to the podcast later. <laughs> Not that I know of. So there's one study that I talk about in the book. And in that study, researchers asked participants how well they know how a helicopter works or how a toilet works and so on. And participants you know, were overconfident. They overestimated their own knowledge. But then when they're asked to actually explain, okay, now write down how a toilet works, they realized they didn't really know. So they realized they were overconfident. And when I first heard about that research, I actually knew these researchers, they're my friends. And I could not resist and ask, was there a gender difference? <laughs> and they said, no, there was no gender difference whatsoever. And the reason why something like this, uh, there's no gender difference in things like that. It's because these things actually happen for a good reason. So we are overconfident about this because when we kind of think about, okay, how does a toilet work? Then we also run in our head. Okay. I know how to flush it. I've lifted this lid up and I know how these things go up and down, how the water is stopped. I've seen it. It works always smoothly. So I must know how to do it. And the illusion that's created by this kind of fluent process is not gender dependent at all. It can happen to anybody. I appreciate that. I ask because one of our favorite family stories is about overconfidence, my overconfidence. Our oldest daughter was going through First Communion in the Catholic Church. We went and they had eight priests. In the center was the bishop. He looked pretty scary. No one was in line. And the parents had to go to confession as well. So no one was in line with the bishop. I decided, let me be a good role model. I'll go to the bishop. I'm not concerned about my sins. Went in. He took me through the process and then asked me, do you know the act of contrition? 
And I said, well, I was an altar board for 10 years, of course. He said, okay, well, I need you to say it now. And I froze, couldn't remember at the beginning. And now I have this little card I carry with me whenever I go to confession, which is not that often anymore. But my daughter was horrified because she said, you actually committed a sin during confession with a bishop. That is a mega sin at an incomprehensible level. So that's so funny. That's really funny. <laughs> so one way these thinking traps play out in day-to-day life, as I read in your book, is how we estimate. And things often take much longer than we think. In your book, you share your experience with renovating your home. What gets in the way of estimating accurately and how can we do that better? Yeah. So the home renovation, I have a lot to say about that, but they basically knocked down a wall in our living room at the end of April. And that living room uh, has been messy and it got finally cleared up yesterday. So it took six months for them to knock down a wall. And in March, they measured all the windows and only about 90% of the windows have been replaced so far. We are still waiting for another 10% of the windows. And the sidings should be all replaced. We, they have not even started it. So what's going on, right? And the, these contractors, they don't want to miss a deadline either. They're, our initial contract was it, they'll be all done by the end of July. And they meant, well, they don't want the delay either. They want to finish the project and move on to a new project and make more money. And they are really working well, but except that there's so many things that we could not anticipate beforehand. But when they're estimating how long it's going to take to complete a project, they also think that, okay, I got to do X, Y, and Z. We need to order the windows and it's going to arrive and then, and so on. But then there are so many unanticipated things that happen. So this is, again, an example of the overconfidence caused by fluent processes in your head. So this is particularly hard because when it comes to BTS, you can actually break your overconfidence by actually trying out. I mean, then you, you can get the feedback right there that you can't do it. But when it comes to planning, you can't think about you can't try it out because of the whole point of planning is planning without trying out. So therefore, uh, what I do to overcome the planning fallacy myself is I just basically like add 50% the time that I initially estimate. And I try not to negotiate with me on this. And sometimes 50% was not enough. My uh, favorite story was I was preparing for... um, uh, revising a lecture on planning fallacy. And I thought it would be done <laughs> within four days. And I said, okay, that means a week. No, it took two weeks because there's so many studies that I read. And then I said, no, this one doesn't work. No, this is not interesting. So it took two weeks. So I think the best thing to do is just to assume that planning fallacy always happens 100% and then just double the estimate. Makes a lot of sense because there are so many things that they're just like, we can't anticipate. And there are so many interdependencies and in so many things that really increase the risk exponentially. Yeah. So how can your research be used to help make us wiser consumers? Yeah. So one thing that I talked about earlier was the endowment effect. So once you own something, then you can't really let it go. And there are many business tricks that they use to make us buy things that we don't really need. So they are like 
free return or 30-day free trials and so on. So when Hamilton was on Disney+, Plus, we, of course, signed up for it. That was not even a free trial, but it was only $7 a month. So we signed up for it. And after watching Hamilton three times, we thought we we're going to finish, we we're going to cancel the subscription, which never happened because <laughs> once we own it, Disney Plus, I can watch it anytime I want, right? <laughs> so it never got canceled. And then also free return thing. I love shopping Zappos and Nordstrom because they're not only free shipping, it's a free return too. And it comes in a box. It's just a matter of just putting it back and just dropping off on my way to work. That's all it takes. But then once you get it, and even if it's a little bit too tight, you might, I can say, okay, I think I'm going to lose four more pounds within a couple of months. Or Zappos shoes, they might be a little bit uncomfortable, but they're cute. And say, I'm pretty sure it will be stretched <laughs> if I wear that. So once you own it, it's really difficult to lose it, right? It's mine. It could be mine. It's in my house. So you can't return it. So to overcome this, always go back to the beginning and say, but now you know that this these shoes are a little bit uncomfortable than they look on the computer. Knowing all that, would you buy it? Would you order it right now? So do that. And then it will be a better decision. Yeah. You've reminded me of my Apple Plus subscription that I bought to watch Ted Lasso. And I think that's the only thing I've watched on Apple Plus. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Very <laughs> effective. Yeah. So all these thinking traps, it sounds like, play out in interpersonal relationships as well. My wife often reminds me that I'm not a mind reader, or at least a very good one. What's egocentric bias and how can we avoid that trap? Okay, so here's something that you can try on your wife. <laughs> you pick a song, right? And you just tap it without singing it. So let's say if it's a happy birthday, right? Then you just do that. And we know what the correct answer is. Of course, she has to guess what the song is. We know what the correct answer is because we knew what the answer is. So it seems like a very, very easy task. Who wouldn't be able to guess happy birthday, right? But if I try a different song without telling you what it is, let's try it. I'm thinking it's a BTS song. <laughs> <laughs> That's another phenomenon. It's called the priming yeah. effect. <laughs> yes, yeah. This was It's Bitsy Spider. Oh, oh, one that I yeah. actually literally played tens of times with our six-month-old grandchild, so, <laughs> granddaughter. So. Wow. <laughs> so let her guess a yeah. song. And if she can't guess it, which is very likely because in an experiment, 100 out of 120 songs, only five could be correctly guessed. So you can prove to her that she's not a good mind reader either. And the reason why we think that other people are not a good mind reader is that we know what we meant to say or what we meant to tap. So for us, it's called the curse of knowledge. We already know it's, it's really difficult to take a perspective of a totally naive person. And this is something that I tell my teaching assistants, you know, the all this content and 
it's really difficult to take a perspective of students who don't know anything about it. And so you really, really have to slow down the pace and explain from the beginning rather than just assume that they will be able to read their mind. And that raises another just thing that occurred to me based on your book and the comment that you made about smart people are more susceptible to some of these biases as an executive coach and, and as a coach working with people transitioning into retirement. I literally spend every waking moment of my day with people who are smarter than I am, which is a great thing. It makes my job very much easier. But how does that work? Why are smarter people more susceptible? Because they know a lot more. So, I mean, there are multiple reasons. One is for them, I mean, they can't understand people who are struggling sometimes. So there was a a former student of mine was getting a private lesson, a violin private lesson from um, someone that everybody knows. I can't name him. Someone who is like really violin Grammy Award winner and so on. And she complained that, uh, well, I asked her, is he a good teacher as a, not just a good violinist, but is he a good teacher? And she just said, well, violin comes naturally to him. So for he does not know how to explain it for the naive people. So that's a problem. Another reason why smarter people can make more errors is that they can rationalize better because they know they know how to explain away things. And everything that we do, there's no, we can never tell what is the truth. We are all making guesses, best guesses on everything. And so when they're interpreting the data in front of them, they can kind of always pick the problems with the, how the data were collected, or they didn't look at this, they didn't look at that. And as a result, they could commit more bias interpretation errors too. Yeah. So I was tempted to tap my guess of the name of the violinist, but I decided not to, <laughs> to reveal it. So what's a favorite example of yours of how you're applying your research in your day-to-day life? Yeah. So I just recently committed a confirmation bias. So I started working at home a lot uh, since the pandemic began. And I knew what was going to happen if I started working at home. I was wearing sweatpants and I'm like only 20 feet away from a refrigerator filled with food. So I gained weight very easily. So I started, okay, I'm going to do exercise 30 minutes a day, every day. A year later, I still gained about seven or eight pounds. And then I thought, okay, exercise is useless. I might as well not do it. I actually gained more weight. But then the next day I realized, oh yeah, I didn't try the other, the disconfirming. I did not try to collect the disconfirming evidence. If I, what I should have done is spend another year during pandemic working at home with the sweatpants and don't do the exercise, then I could have gained 15 pounds rather than seven pounds. So maybe exercise did reduce the weight. It helped controlling, but I forgot to think about the other alternative. The other thing that I always use is that before I prepare for lectures, if I look at the slides, you know, I know these studies, I know what I'm going to cover. I've been doing this for many, many years and it creates an illusion that I think I can just do it. But I always make a rule that I'm going to actually rehearse and click through all these slides at least once, sometimes twice before each lecture, no matter how many times I've given this lecture. 
Great examples. So I came away from reading your book with a clear sense that there's a mission behind your work. How can cognitive psychology help us individually and collectively as a society? Yeah. So cognitive psychology, the subfield of cognitive psychology that I study is a higher level reasoning processes, the thinking processes, basically. And, and many students take my course thinking that they want to think better because they can outsmart everybody else in the room. They want to have an edge of our head start. But I don't want them to learn that kind of things. To me, thinking better means being more fair to oneself as well as to other people. So let's go back to the confirmation bias again. So let's say someone believes that she's introvert and shy. And if she commits confirmation bias, then she will avoid all sorts of social interactions, avoid the parties or neighborhood parties or something because she thinks that she's shy and she's going to be awkward. And once you start not seeing other people, she's going to get even more awkward and more shy also. So it gets into the vicious cycle and that's not really fair for her either. So, and I actually show this with a genetic testing, genetic feedback in my study. So it's a genetic feedback was actually, it was a fake. And we debriefed the participants at the end of the experiment that this was all fake. And we explained what the scientific values are, but half the participants who received the feedback, they have a genetic risks for depression. And the other half were told that they do not have genetic risks for major depression. And after they got these feedback, we asked them how depressed they were in the past two weeks. And these participants were randomly assigned to one of these two conditions. So there's really no reason why the one group had spent more depressing two weeks than the other group. However, the ones who were told that they have a genetic risk for depression, their depression level was so high that it could be almost diagnosed as a depression. So we use this three-minute fake saliva test, and within three minutes, we could create depression in the lab. And these are the important lessons that the 23andMe or Ancestor.com or whoever does a genetic testing, they should be aware of these results and inform the consumers. And these are kind of the things that I believe that how the cognitive psychology can help the society. I the pleasure of interviewing another Yale professor, Becca Levy. Yes. About She's a really, friend of mine. <laughs> yes, a great conversation, great, another great book, as yours is, about really the positive benefit of attitudes toward aging and really the, the impact it can have on longevity based on her Yes, work. definitely. Her study is also incredible that she shows the, like, the actual physical consequences of it, right? And one last question, if I could ask one bonus question. I noticed in your book that you also became empty nesters. And I was curious just to talk about that because that's where we're almost there. And many of the people listening have gone through that transition or anticipated. What's that been like becoming an empty nester? Oh, gosh. Well, my kids know this. I actually felt more free. <laughs> and that's why I dare to write a book. <laughs> I agreed to write the book. And well, it's kind of unfair to me because they're both attend. Uh, they both went to Yale, so they're still close by. So it wasn't that bad. But yeah, I think I'm fine with it. And we are also 
making sure to have a family trip at least, you know, once a year. And we're on the phone. And so it's been okay to me. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your research and, and your work. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to read your book and to have the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's time for the takeaway segment. A few quick ideas to consider adding to your to-do list following this podcast conversation. Number one, get clear on why thinking better can help you and others. I love what Dr. Ahn said about this, talking about her students, that they tend to at first think of this as a way to get an edge and outsmart others. But as she put it, thinking better means being more fair to oneself as well as to other people. So get clear about how this can help you and help others in your life if you were to reduce or minimize the tendency for thinking errors. Number two, be aware, but take it to the next step. I think sometimes we're more quick to see the thinking errors in others than in ourselves. So think about your thinking, but don't stop there. She gave a great example with the confirmation bias, which she's called the most dangerous one. And while awareness is good, you then need to perhaps, as she used in her example, look at the disconfirming evidence. Try the other side of the equation. Keep looking at the other side. Number three, don't let the losses keep you away from the gains. This brings it back to how we might be able to apply this in planning for retirement and life in retirement. There are a lot of losses that come with retiring. We talk about them often. Status, structure, social connectivity, identity, etc. And it can lead some people to really withdraw and be fearful and get paralyzed a little bit. And that can prevent people from trying new things, getting out there, taking a different direction. Don't let the losses keep you from the gains. Be aware of them, but look for the other side. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. You can get a glance at all of our episodes at our website, retirementwisdom.com. There are five seasons there. You can browse the topics and the great guests we've had the opportunity to talk with. It's like a free retirement school, retirementwisdom.com. Thanks for listening. Just one more thing before you take off. Is it time to design your new life after you graduate from the world of full-time work? Go to retirementwisdom.com and schedule a call today with Joe Casey. Working with an experienced coach like Joe can help you explore new possibilities and gain clarity on your future. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. See you next week. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.